This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist Jack Ullman of the Sacramento Bee. He's one of only 50 political cartoonists left in the country. Currently, his cartoons are syndicated by the Washington Post Writers Group, Previously, his work appeared in 200 newspapers through the Tribune Content Agency, and he was, at age 19, the youngest editorial cartoonist ever nationally syndicated. Jack talks about the creative process of being a political cartoonist, some of the restrictions, and some of the dangers of his profession. Jack, you've won tons of awards, but uh, go back and tell me how you get started in political cartooning. I mean, <laughs> it's a circuitous route. I was—I be, I bet it is. I was supposed to become governor of Minnesota, <laughs> and little did I realize how easy it would be to become governor of Minnesota, and how hard it would be to be a political cartoonist. Much harder. <laughs> yeah, like I'm it's sure. much easier to become a U.S. senator because there are a hundred jobs and there's only fifty left in American political cartooning. Yeah, I had a lot of uh, childhood experiences in Washington, D.C., and when I was seven, I watched Washington burning after Martin Luther King was assassinated, and I went to Robert Kennedy's burial as a seven-year-old and saw the hearse and the The janky and the the, well, and and Ethel Kennedy and President Johnson, and so, you know, some seven-year-olds, that would be a blur to them, but it was, I was very aware, and so... I developed a strong interest in politics and the news, and um, which you know, people my age. I was born in 1960, uh, and I was <laughs> telling this story this morning where uh, my parents. I was born in 1960. My parents were named John and Jackie. <laughs> they named me Jack my given name, and they voted for Nixon. So, like, how could you not start off ironically, right? That's totally, like a born Totally politi- conflicted. Right, born political cartoonist. Yeah. And so I saw these things, and I lived in D.C., and then I went through Watergate as a young teenager and uh, was fascinated by it. And, uh, you know, and Watergate created a you know, great generation of American journalists and a great generation of new journalism schools, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, by the time I got into uh, working age, uh, when I was a late in high school, I worked in politics. I was an advance man for a congressional candidate in 1978, and I worked at the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party headquarters as an intern and um, the guy who succeeded me as the intern became the Democratic nominee for governor in 1994 <laughs> and lost. And so I realized, you know, maybe politics wasn't for me, although my hair is really nice for politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, An anchorman. <laughs> right. You can get this wig for $69 online. 
so I had, um, you know, been drawing cartoons for my student paper in high school, and then there was an opening for a job on the Minnesota Daily, the student paper at the University of Minnesota. And so I wound up uh, getting interviewed, and I was up against 39 art majors who had no idea who, who William F. Buckley was. That was like their trick question. And so they were getting blank stares. And of course, I was off to the races on, well, I had read, you know, I watched Firing Line, and I read Cruising Speed and things like that. And so... Um, so I had this political background to go with this kind of nascent art skill that I had. And so I wound up um, uh, getting syndicated while I was still in college by the Chicago Tribune. And I was 19, and I was and still remain the youngest ever syndicated cartoonist, mm-hmm. I mean in major syndication. And uh, now I'm just one of America's later middle-aged cartoonists, but, uh, dying, 57 b- years old. Breed yeah, I'm hanging in there. Yeah. Um, but I had uh, <laughs> my first job was at the Columbus Dispatch, and that was in April of 1981. And uh, I had a really interesting experience there, and I lived there for just over a year. Uh, I lived in German Village. I met my first wife there. I spent lots of time in the Hocking Hills, which I drove through yesterday, and it yeah, was it's very, beautiful. very poignant. I mean, it was poignant for me, and uh, it's, it is a very beautiful area. And so I'd, I'd never been to Athens before. And then after that, I went to the Detroit Free Press, and I worked up there for about a year and a half. And my wife was from Oregon, and so we moved back to Oregon, and I got a job on the Oregonian. And I was out there for 28 years. And uh, one of my best friends in cartooning was the cartoonist for the Sacramento Bee. His name was Rex Babin. And he died at 49 of cancer. And so his editors and the publisher asked me to come down and replace him. And so I was 51 at the time. And I thought this is probably, you know, 51 is, if you're going to make a change, that's the time. That's the time. And, uh, so it was a very poignant experience for me to go do that. And, I mean, I was really close to this guy. And uh, so I was there about, I guess, less than three years, and I won the Pulitzer. Is it difficult um, doing political cartoons and not being in the Washington area? Do you feel removed at all being on the West Coast? Washington is just television now, you know. Okay. I mean, if you think about it. I mean, yeah. and I'm in a major capital, sure. you know, in Sacramento, mm-hmm. and you guys have a major capital in Columbus. Right. And it's like, you know, can you comment on Columbus from Athens? Sure you can. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I, w- I was at the the Gridiron Dinner a couple of weeks ago, and all Washington gives you is you get to run into Andrea Mitchell and, you know, <laughs> and uh, Alan Greenspan and— and see that well, Blitzer really isn't five ten and things like that, and so you know he's really small. Well, I'm just saying they're they're either all we have a game. I used to play at the political conventions. It's called taller or shorter, you know, and it would be like, uh, you know, uh, Sam Donaldson taller, you know, um, Ted Koppel shorter, you know, yeah. <laughs> and uh, then you think, you know, yeah. Walter Cronkite shorter. Um, anyway, so no, I don't think it's necessary to be in D.C. at all when you start the process, if you can help me 
understand the process. Is it the same all the time? Do you start with the idea and then draw it? Or do you start with a drawing and then come up with an idea? Or is it a mixed bag? Well, mostly it's subject followed by what you think about the subject, followed by the distillation of some phrase out of that subject, which leads to, you know, the word or the picture that you're trying to do. The art is very secondary to me. It's the most fun, but the hardest part is, wow, there's, and particularly in this environment, there's so many subjects. Uh, it, they're, they're, you could do six cartoons a day if you're physically able to do so. Um, you know, and back prior to this situation we're in, uh, you would be able to just, you know, there would be the one or maybe two stories. Um, so it's a very challenging environment for me. But, you know, sometimes you'll also be doodling on the margin of something and you'd think, oh, that, that could be something. And then, you know, you might store that for a week or a month or a year and then something will come up and you'll think, oh, that'd be, that'd be good metaphor but most almost like joke writing i know comedians that have notebooks upon notebooks of just ideas that may germinate or may not yeah well you know we all have sketchbooks too i mean most of my real work is done in teeny tiny letters at the top of a drawing not in the drawing itself so i'll just be writing little phrases and you know sometimes you'll see one phrase and it will connect with another phrase and you know, it just depends on what your needs are that day. But generally speaking, the process I described is subject, uh, what you think, phrase, draw it. The drawing is the easy part. And when you get an idea, what audience are you aiming it for? Do you aim it to yourself or do you think, okay, this is going to resonate with the average reader out there or do you even think about that? Well, when I started in print journalism in 1978, or we can call it 81 if you want to talk about on a major daily newspaper, uh, the audience was very broad. And so now what I've you can see that the demographic has aged in daily newspapers, generally speaking. And so, um, you know, your typical newspaper reader is probably 60 years old, more or less, and uh, probably more educated, I think. And so, um, you know, the maybe the generation of cartoonists prior to mine, uh, you know, the kind of the Malden Herblock generation, mm -hmm. I would define it as, uh, were very... Um, symbolically based. A lot of the major political cartoonists were formally trained artists rather than journalists or, you know, wherever they came from. But mostly they were guys in the, the art department who got a promotion, right? Right. And so now, um, you know, it's a rather eclectic group of people I mean, then, who've done different things in life. Uh, one of my colleagues won the Pulitzer a couple of years ago. Mike Keefe was a former Marine and a ABD and mathematics. And, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, Mike Peters was a young Air Force um, enlistee and, and uh, worked at his base paper in Okinawa. And Bill Malden decided he was good and so got helped him get a job. And so there's a lot of different ways to get there. So when you're, when you have this idea and when you, um, you know, taking consideration your audience and 
and you're you're drawing it. Do you visualize how people are going to react to it, or do you do it in just sort of a vacuum? Well, the the business has changed so dramatically, and even in the last five years, ten years, where we didn't post anything on Facebook or tweeted or any of that. I mean, that's changed the business. And I think, uh, you know, for well or ill, um, it was a lot easier for me to just kind of, in the, in the print era where there was virtually no electronic dissemination, I mean, we were not really using the internet as uh, commonly until about 1995 or so. Um, and that just kind of, well, it, Craigslist and that, you know, laid down the seeds of destruction for print journalism. And so um, the upside is I have a lot of tools I can use in my business now, Google Images. I can get a a lot of reaction really quickly. The bad news is you can get a lot of reaction really quickly. (laughs) And, uh, you know, people just used to write letters to the editor, and now they tweet at you and, you know, post your home address and tell you that they're driving up I-40 to come and get you and stuff like that. Send all kinds of hate. Oh, yeah. It's quite frightening, actually. Knowing that your work is going to be digitally disseminated uh, as opposed to just in in print, do you draw differently knowing that it's going to be digital? No, I well, in some ways, but I, elementally, I'm still drawing with ink and a brush on a piece of Strathmore paper. Now, some of my colleagues are drawing theirs exclusively on iPads or Wacom pads, or and uh, right, I, who knew? But uh, I prefer the feel of the paper and the brush and the ink, and I will continue to do that. Um, but I also have been doing something with the McClatchy Company. I. I've been drawing 3D cartoon illustrations, which I believe I'm the first person to be doing that in VR. And so this is, it's an astounding technology where you put this head, you know, this thing on your head and you've got two controllers and the virtual uh, pad or, uh, you know, whatever it's called, uh, menu pad or something is floating in front of you as you're drawing and you're trying to, you know, do these things without a rough sketch in a, in a you know virtual room, and uh, I, I think something is probably going to be up soon to demonstrate that from McClatchy. But it's it's very exciting and fascinating uh, technology. It, 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 uh, drawing three D and virtual is it is it more like sculpting than it is sketching? That's probably the closest way to describe it because my, the first two times I put the headset on, I was not picking up on it at all. I because my head was, you know, 2D. Yeah, And sure. so um, then I almost accidentally discovered that, oh, I can put the hand in the foreground and it actually looks like it's in the foreground. I mean, I mean I'm not, you know, terribly bright, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's 3D, Jack. Try that, you yeah. know. And uh, so, you know, those are some of the new technologies that, that I've been messing around with. But fundamentally, I'm just uh, – I was just telling – uh, my friend here that, uh, you know, I can do it with a flare pen still. And, and do it quickly? Do uh-huh. you work quickly? We all work quickly. I have a 2 o'clock deadline now because I, my syndication is with the Washington Post Writers Group, and so they need to see things by 2 o'clock. So that's uh, 5 o'clock 
DC time. So being on the West Coast, you're kind of behind the eight ball anyway on deadlines. But Unless you're a really early riser. Right. So I mean, a lot of times I, you know, I try not to see them, but I see that my colleagues have posted already by the time I'm into work. Are there subjects or people who are off limits to you that you've set your own boundaries? Well, the limits have been expanded now, haven't they, on every level? And they it's, seem to. <laughs> and it's very troubling. I, things that you don't didn't think would ever appear in print, let alone out of the mouth of the president of the United States, are out there. And so um, I remember when uh, President Reagan and there was some they were talking about drug testing and urinalysis and all the cartoonists were like oh gee what am i going <laughs> to how am i going to handle that? this you know and now that's kind of like on a scale of 1 to 100 that's like a 3 now so um, the africa comments i'm sure were troublesome i just i just think that there's you know maybe some things are better left unsaid and i think really good political cartoonists work in subtle ways and maybe the obvious glaring, blaring example of rhetoric is not really where we want to be as a culture or in society. I know that's almost oxymoronic and comical to hear from an editorial cartoonist, but I think that's not, you know, that the speech limits are one thing, but just taste is another. And, you know, when the president is more tasteless than the political cartoonists, I think we've got a problem. <laughs> We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. What about family and, and uh, like first ladies? Uh, I, I don't draw cartoons on Baron Trump, right? I mean, there are people in, well, you ask. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't sure. think. Well, but I mean, the question was, and yeah. I apologize, was are there any people or things that are off limits? Sure, there are lots of things that are off limits. I mean, you don't. I wouldn't go out of my way to do a cartoon about the First Lady generally. I mean, I have, but, you know, a lot of – a lot. I think that there's a lot of collateral damage in politics, and I try to keep it to the subjects. But, you know, there's there are subjects that you have to be very careful about, and I would 
give you an illustration. Please. Of, uh, just recently in Sacramento, we had a police shooting of oh, Stefan right. Clark, you yes. know, and this is not a humorous subject. And no. so um, I was just saying to the group today that you have to be very careful in how you approach a subject like that because, like, most people think of cartoonists as hitting the one note. They have to be funny all the time and really good cartoonists don't, aren't just funny all the time. They're poignant or they're pointed or something. I mean, I'll do a, a funny cartoon one day and I'll do a humor or a poignant cartoon the next day and I'll do a rueful cartoon the next day. I guess it just depends on the subject. But, you know, you when you're doing a cartoon about a police shooting and it hasn't been actually adjudicated yet and the community's up in arms and the law enforcement community is defensive and the politicians are in a crouch, then, and I've got to, I got to add something to this. That's hard. And I, I, did three cartoons in the last week or so on the subject and it's you know it's a horrible situation and it's very stressful to comment on but a situation such as that you say you've done three cartoons would would you ever look at a situation and say you know it's it's too soon it's like comedy after 9-11 sure it, you know and and oh 9-11 i'm, I, I'm just gonna back off of this for a while <clears throat> well 9-11 was fascinating because like every cartoonist in the country went from drawing George W. Bush, three and a half feet tall to like normal size. I'm not kidding. And I did it. You know, there was this kind of, okay, let's just let's just back up here a minute. Okay, where we just going to keep demeaning, you know, somebody just because it's fun? Or do we really like, okay, let's let's put George W. Bush back in the context of an actual president and human being. And so um, I think that there was a lot of that. And the first, I probably a lot with a lot of other, every cartoonist practically, after about 10 days, you could kind of see where Ashcroft was going. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so it was like, well, maybe we can do Ashcroft cartoons, you know? And so then you started to see the Ashcroft cartoons coming out. This, Well, maybe we can do Cheney, you know? And then the Cheney cartoons would come out. And then eventually they became politicians and real people again. And so... And we, then the whole we, Patriot we, Act. We reverted. Well, that was the original cartoon. But, yeah. but we reverted to the mean. When you confront something like that and, and do uh, and change your style do you do that often or and is that subtle and people pick up on it did people pick up on that you took george w bush from three feet tall to normal size i think some commentators noticed it i think that you could see it not just in political cartooning but everywhere where people were okay we're in a national crisis. We were attacked by people who were very bad actors, and we got to go get them, which actually led me to – I was a naval officer candidate in 2002, I mean, if you can believe that. Um, and so a lot of people not only – they were – felt, that, you know, those very pure stirrings of patriotism. I mean, that's what I felt, you know, and it was a moment of clarity uh, politically, I think, where – um, it wasn't really – I mean, my politics are rather clear in my work. I'm not going to say that I'm a conservative Republican. I'm not. Um, but I felt that it was uh, – there are so many wonderful things about this country, including being able to say whatever you want in a tasteful way, of course. <laughs> but, you know, that they they were worth defending. And so I, I volunteered uh, for Naval Reserve in public affairs and uh, – didn't quite get there, but I went through the physical and did all the interviews, and I got shot down at the last minute by Naval Recruiting Command. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. A political slant, and you said you're not a conservative Republican. 
are most political cartoonists more liberal in their political views, and does that go along with sort of being a wise ass and a, <laughs> and a comic and and sort of uh, uh, screw you to authority kind of approach? Well, you can see that I'm just so wild in your studio <laughs> with my black suit and my neatly combed hair and my naval officer candidacy. How I describe my own politics sure. is that, look, I grew up in an Eisenhower Republican home, okay? Uh, my parents were not, you know, they were like kind of typical middle American people. They're centrists. My father was always that way. My, but my father was ultimately uh, a scientist. He was deputy chief of the U.S. Forest Service. And when he retired, my mother was, you know, very much kind of a madman housewife, sat around and smoked all day and drove the kids around <laughs> and, and so on. And um, so I, I own guns. I have a pickup truck. I own an Airstream. I fly fish. I do regular fishing. I mean, I have some you know, qualities that people would say, oh, well, he's culturally conservative. My wife is a past, former pastor in the Salvation and was a, a major in the Salvation Army. Wow. And so, like, what am I, you know? Now, yeah, I, 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 my, as I said, my work is clear, but it's like, why can't those things be in place as, you know, a cultural touchstone that it's okay for me to own hunting rifles and fish and drive a pickup and have a trailer and also but there's so many i'm sure millions of readers who just think of me as uh you know a communist or something and i i mean <laughs> it, 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 but you know that's frustrating because we we become so reductionist in our political debate that that that's where we are you can't be kind of both things you can't be i mean i heard somebody i'm not going to say who today almost apologetically say they were roman catholic and a journalist and it was like well okay why why would you have that tonality you know and so to me if you go back to like say Jack Kennedy running as a Catholic, where it was like you had to go through that barrier. Where it was um, first, but, but it like was, Obama, right? For, but 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 it wasn't wrong or bad. No. It was just like you know that's who they were, and so now you know what I see on the, in political discourse is wow, you've either got like a be a monster truck riding AR fifteen, you know, uh, uh, camouflage wearing WWE fan. <laughs> Or, you know, a granola-eating, latte-sucking, you know, apple-teeny-drinking San Francisco, you know, florist or something. And then there's no middle ground. And I and most I, people live in the middle. And most people live in the middle. In particular, I mean, Ohio is like the middlest of middle America, <laughs> yes, you know. Yes, And I mean, John Kasich, and I, I want to give John Kasich some props. I mean, John Kasich was a young state senator when I was at the Columbus Dispatch. He was 29 years old. And I used to think John Kasich was like the craziest right-wing Reaganite in the world. And he, <laughs> he beat Bob Mas or Bill Mashofsky for Congress. That's right. And uh, – I was, how, oh my God, how did this happen? And now John Kasich is like literally the voice of reason in the Republican Party and maybe in both parties. And too liberal and, for, for right. much of the party. And well, for example, my wife and I absolutely would not rule out voting for John Kasich in 2020. Okay. And yeah, we're sure. liberals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. I mean, I think John Kasich would be a good president in the sense that let's calm down. 
Okay, let's just back it up. Okay, yeah. we could just have like a regular Republican who's kind of cheap, you know, that kind of, you know, <laughs> doesn't want to. Kind of likes privatization, like, kind but of, that's but, okay. But that's okay, and but he's generally an ecumenical, open person. And I think, you know, the divide on civil rights was fascinating to me. It's like we, we got Obama in and then Kasich is marginalized in his own party for like wanting to be a fair-minded person. I mean, unless I'm misreading it. No. No. So, uh, you know, I like some Democrats. I like John Kasich. That, how's that? So, fine. Probably uh, plays great in <laughs> Athens, Columbus. No, probably Maybe not. I become his press secretary. Uh, you also write, according to your bio, editorials and columns. Mm-hmm. So you're, you write as well as doing the political cartoons. I, I'm interested in the creative process of both. Are they similar? Are they different? How do you approach one, uh, the writing part? We've heard how you approach the cartoon part. but Well, the writing has to be accurate, <laughs> which is very troubling. Um, and cartoons don't necessarily. Well, their their opinion. I mean, for example, I'm finished. And finish, exaggeration. And their exaggeration. And I would – I am finishing a book on Robert F. Kennedy and the Oregon primary in 1968. And I've been working on this book for close to 20 years. And I interviewed Eugene McCarthy, and it's all primary sourced. And now I'm just kind of bringing it. I'm going to self-publish it because only 800 people are going to read it in Oregon, right? But like I interviewed Senator Hatfield, and so this is like a real book. And so it's very meticulous. But And so that's one kind of writing. And then there's opinion writing where – you know, you can uh, – I love doing columns at, in the Sacramento Bee about, like, made-up bills in the assembly or something. And so that's just – but it has to have some sort of basis in fact or something happened in the news in Sacramento or California that I'm commenting on. And then there's the flight of fancy of political cartooning, which objectively still has to be rooted in an opinion that's based on some, you know, a, a mutually a, a agreed germ, upon fact. A germ of fact yeah. that, that well, blossoms out. Right. I can't just say that, you know, uh, the president was with a pornography star or something without absolute, you know, correlation. But, you know, but so there is still fact-based cartooning. You must have had a heyday with Governor Schwarzenegger. Well, I wasn't drawing cartoons about Schwarzenegger. I didn't come down until uh, thirteen, oh. but uh, having Jerry Brown <laughs> is, <laughs> again. well again, again. <laughs> and so that's been fascinating because, like, he's somebody who's been on the scene literally my entire adult life and back into my childhood. I have cartoons that I drew of Jerry Brown in nineteen seventy five, probably when he was burst on bursting on the scene nationally and. Uh, I've run some of them in the B, and uh, and so he just turned eighty years old, and you know he and I are still having this little dance with each other. And I actually, his dog became was a well-known figure of a dog can be a figure <laughs> in California, and so I drew his dog just relentlessly for years, and the dog. Sutter was the name of the dog, was in my Pulitzer Prize package. So Sutter is like the only like live, real dog that ever won the Pulitzer. <laughs> Do you save everything? And you must have storage. <laughs> you should see my garage. You must have storage issues. I do. Well, I've drawn, I think, probably 12 or 13,000 cartoons that are in finished form. That doesn't count the rough sketches and all and the books and 
so on. And so I've got probably 35 or 40 tubs at the B that are like, you know, the storable type right. large tubs. And then, uh, you know, whatever else is around. And so uh, it's, it's, it's a mess. And uh, cartoonists are always looking to figure out a place to park their stuff. And you're, uh, this Ohio State University, which is up the street, has the definitive probably cartoon, International yeah. Cartoon Museum yeah. and library. And so they, they inquire sweetly as to my health every year or so. <laughs> They're waiting for the, st- right. the, the, the stash. Right, as soon as they get three million bucks, that's, they're in. How about, uh, last question I mm-hmm. want to ask you, or last area is, is competitiveness uh, between political cartoonists. As we said, there's a dwindling number of them. You, you indicated down to about 50. And, mm-hmm. and, and uh, still highly competitive or, or not so much? Well, it's cordially highly competitive. I, I think the Columbus Dispatch cartoonist, Nate Beeler, is outstanding, for example. I mean, he's artistically great and a really nice guy. And um, you know, am I theoretically competing against him for some newspaper space in, you know, Decorah, Iowa or something like that? Sure. But, like, we all get together. We Most most of us get together every year in our group, the Association of American Editorial Cartoonists. And it's generally we're kind of past that now. I mean, I think when I first entered into it, there were kind of rival cartooning gangs, you know. Right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's the inks versus the brushes, man, <laughs> you know. And uh, so there's, but it's it's pretty low key now. I mean, there's the usual backbiting. I mean, I'm sure that there's some public radio host that you hate, you know, and would not say on the air. But uh, of course, of course, right? <laughs> of but, course. Yeah, I don't like the way Corva Coleman's voice sounds at all. You know, Jack, I know you're suffering from uh, jet lag, but uh, I'm doing great now. I don't know. Doing, what's that. doing great. <laughs> thanks. Keep, thanks. Thanks for talking. With Thank me. you so much. Today, we've been talking with Jack Oman, the 2016 Pulitzer Prize winner for editorial cartooning, about his creative process and some of the dangers facing political cartoonists today. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Thank you.